0: Welcome to episode 64 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now. And Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode is part two of our series discussing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And today we'll be talking in this episode about the true cause of fatty liver. And throughout this series, we've been discussing the general mechanisms and the physiology underlying this condition of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And the part of the reason why we're spending so much time discussing it is because it directly applies to virtually every other chronic health condition or pathological state that we can experience. So it's pretty integral to understand these things. And we've been working to simplify the mechanisms and the physiology using some graphics. So if you would like to see those, then you uh, may want to head over to YouTube to watch the video for this episode. But we'll also make sure to be explaining it verbally as well. And this is a slightly different style of podcast from what we normally do, where we are really digging into the details here that we don't dig into quite as much all the time. So you guys will have to let me know if you do like this style or if you prefer for us to keep it a little more simple. But either way, we will take some time at the end of the series to discuss what all this means as far as diet and lifestyle and supplements and anything else that you might want to do to reverse this state of fatty liver. In today's episode, in particular. We'll be discussing why fructose does not cause leptin resistance, we'll be talking about how our livers produce fat from fructose or from dietary fat, we'll be talking about how a failure of energy production or mitochondrial respiration is the primary cause of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and we'll be talking about why increases in uncoupling, autophagy, mitophagy, and other stress pathways is often a sign of dysfunction and stress. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at the studies or articles or anything else that we reference throughout today's episode. And if you are not as interested in the deeper physiology and mechanisms as far as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease goes, feel free to head back and listen to any other episode of the podcast. If you haven't listened to episodes one through seven yet, I'd highly recommend you go back and do that where we took some time to build a foundation as far as the bioenergetic view of health is concerned. And I do have a big announcement to make on today's episode, which is that Mike's brand new website is live. You can find it at MikeFaveNP.com. That's MikeFaveNP.com. And he'll be posting some content there. And he's also offering consultations. So you can contact him there if you're interested in working with him. And as always, you can take a look at my website and my other content, as well as my services at jfeldmanwellness.com. And if you are dealing with any symptoms or related conditions to this series, maybe you're dealing with fatty liver or insulin resistance or any other related conditions like diabetes or heart disease, or maybe you're dealing with other low energy symptoms like chronic cravings or fatigue or joint pain or weight gain. Or digestive symptoms like bloating or intestinal inflammation, or maybe you're dealing with brain fog or poor sleep or insomnia, or any hormonal imbalances that might appear as low libido or reproductive issues of any sort. Or if you're dealing with any other low energy symptoms, then head over to slash energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by a lack of energy. And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and reverse these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's pick up where we left off in the last episode where we were discussing the carbohydrate overfeeding studies and why overfeeding on carbohydrates might not be such a concern. And we've talked about this in the past. Why overfeeding is really not a concern, you know, in this regard, because when we're producing energy and using the food that we're taking in, well, it, it naturally turns off our hunger signals. That's the whole point of hunger in the first place. So, uh, way before this point, in someone who's metabolically healthy and eating a lot of food, they would not be continually hungry to the point where they could even eat that much.
1: They wouldn't become a leptin or a leptin resistant, right? Is that the thing? <laughs> right, and
0: that yeah. Well, and that's but- so. I know, I'm glad you mentioned that because Lustig talked about how fructose causes leptin resistance. And what he was basically showing was that inflammatory pathways that also coincide with fat production in the liver cause leptin resistance. And again, that's not not true. Like that is true. But it's not because of the fructose. It's because when you're not producing enough energy, then and literally ATP is 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 shown in this situation to cause a lack of ATP yeah. shown to cause leptin resistance and a lack of ATP specifically in the liver. And in the hypothalamus in the brain, which is that hunger center. So this idea that it's just caused by fructose is really ridiculous. And instead you could say it's caused by poor metabolism, high amounts of inflammation and high amounts of fat accumulation, which are happening because of those earlier things. And we'll talk about those, the details of those mechanisms, but yeah, the, the fructose does not cause, uh, does not cause that leptin resistance. I'm glad in that you itself, brought that up. Yeah. Right. Well,
1: right. it's cause it's the body essentially is the body doesn't sense calories. Calories is our construct. The body senses energy. And so right. it's looking like and when you have in, in the studies that, or I would, I don't know the specific ones offhand, but I would assume in the fructose feeding study that luck, that Lustig was talking about with the lepto resistance, it, the inflammatory process that occurred with the just pure fructose free feeding was essentially, I mean, well, we know that in general, pure fructose feeding with the production of endotoxin is going to cause an energetic failure. So mm-hmm. it wasn't leptin resistance. It was literally the body saying, "Well, yeah, we ate, but we don't. Have, we still don't yeah. have energy, right? So we still need to, you know, we still need to to pound it." I remember the leptin resistance. Like there was an argument in what, when I was in college in one of my psych classes. They were talking about like, "Oh, it's a genetic like being overweight is a genetic thing." Like mm-hmm. there's a leptin resistance response in some part of the hypothalamus, and like certain people are just genetically will overeat because of that. And it's just like overeat what, like because there's some things you can't overeat. Like yeah, it's kind of hard to overeat steak. It's kind of hard to overeat potatoes. Like there's very strong satiating signals from some of these foods. So, I, I mean, it's a little tangential, but yeah, it's it, every yeah. I mean, the point comes down to that. It's measuring energy. It's measuring energy, not calories.
0: Yeah, and we're not. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Well, I was just saying like, as far as the steak and that side of things, we're also not suggesting that you just turn off your hunger signals by filling yourself up and eating very satiating foods either. Rather, we just want to do it through the energetic mechanisms, like through producing energy. Well, yeah.
1: Yeah. I just thought it was so absurd when I was in school. It was just like, like they showed a video too. It's like, these people can't stop eating, And then like the foods they were eating was like donuts and and cake and cookies. It's just like, and I just, like, I told the professor, I was like, what if you just gave them, you know, and this is a point where we were doing paleo stuff, but it's Mm -hmm. like, what if we just gave them salads and salmon and, and blueberries? Like how much are they going to overeat on that stuff? Like if I gave them a plate of steamed broccoli steak and butter, and then they had blueberries after like, how much are they going to overeat? Like, I would love to see that instead of, we need to like target this genetic pathway in the hypothalamus Related to leptin, I, I thought it was so ridiculous, right? It was yeah, just, it like of course it had to be a genetic explanation,
0: <laughs> right? And and circling back to the to the leptin situation, another thing that really like to say that is fructose is so insane when you see that one of the most um and you see this with also just gaining weight and causing pretty much any issue is when you take a rat and you put them on a quote unquote high fat diet. That's another like that's a a uh, reliable way to cause all sorts of issues, including. Uh, leptin resistance. So, if you want to just go on what happens in the rats in these ridiculous studies, then you probably shouldn't be eating any fat either. Which most yeah. of the people who are who are talking about the fructose causing leptin resistance are in favor of high fat. So, it's basically like a parallel. Um, yeah, just a, a parallel. Re, you know, research-driven conclusion.
1: Yeah. Well, basically, everyone's trying to find something that support supports their particular ideology, right? Yeah. So, but like it, it needs to be supported. Like it needs to actually make sense physiologically. I think that's going to be the final representation, not whether it's fructose or fat or whatever, whatever some, somebody wants to like scapegoat the problem as. So I think looking at leptin through the, through the lens of energy, as opposed to calories, I think is probably the most important shift ideologically or, or, mental mental framework shift for things because like it's easy to get it's easy to get caught up in that reductionism when you like when you're conflating calories and energy right it's like right like alcohol gives you x number of calories but (laughs) it doesn't give you it like our body doesn't effectively raise temperature to raise water one degree celsius with alcohol like it does with fruit juice right and i'm saying that jokingly yeah, <laughs> but it's just
0: because that's that's how people measure a calorie, and it, it, it's yeah. dependent on on like they use yeah, it's the amount of energy required to to raise a gram of water one degree yeah. Celsius. It's
1: it's just weird because it's like calories having the associative um it has a strong association with energy because it's mm-hmm. a gauge of amount of food, but it's not actually telling us like what's happening at the cellular level, and I think this is right. where when we start to get into the mechanics where it becomes like more important, and you start seeing the derangement happens at the cell and then bleeds mm-hmm. outwards from there. And it's basically like a whole host of backup systems to make sure that the cell like is somehow dealing with the situation. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So let's, so let's get to, let's get to that right now. Like what's, what's going on there. The one thing I wanted to mention to you had mentioned alcohol a couple of times, and I didn't want to mention that fructose, has been shown to double the detoxification rate of alcohol. Increases by it increases it by 100, percent which is just worth mentioning. It just like kind of shows such a such a contrast with this idea that fructose is also a metabolic toxin. Because if it was, it would definitely decrease. It would probably cut it in half. Instead, it, it would decrease the amount of detoxification of of alcohol, not increase it. Um, so yeah. that, I just figured that was worth mentioning. But yeah, so so basically, what we're getting at. Uh, is that the, and where we started here is that the oxidation of carbohydrates or when carbohydrates are not being used well, they're not being oxidized, they're not being stored, they're not being released as, uh, you know, converted to glucose and, and released, then that backup option is to be converted toward fat. And the same thing can be said for fat as well, where uh, if the fat is not being used, then it'll be stored. If it's not being converted to something else, it'll be stored. If it's not being converted to energy, it'll be stored. And so I will, I'm going to pull up, also graphic. if it,
1: if you have any type of nutrient deficiency, like a rank nutrient deficiency or like mm-hmm. even deficiencies in things like choline, which is what the what a lot of people will talk about mm-hmm. with fatty liver and what one of the questions was specifically related to, you cannot process fats effectively without that. Mm-hmm. So like it could they're all and it, it can go hand in hand with deficiencies and like even with alcohol, like, even with alcoholic liver disease, like the processing of the alcohol and the effects of alcohol in the liver cause deficiencies over time because it speeds up the utilization of those nutrients and also impairs absorption and basically causes wasting of those nutrients as well. So there's a yeah. lot that goes into it. Um, it's not just, oh, fructose is the, the poison, and that's it, or saturated fat is the poison, and that's it. It's like, there's, like you need to be able to process those saturated fats. you need to be able to process the fructose effectively. And this is why when you start looking at like particularly fructose, like, oh, you're taking it in with, in, in with fruit juice that changes mm-hmm. it drastically from just like drinking straight up agave nectar or something, which is almost pure fructose, like one of the only things. So yeah. the, those are like drastic differences and, and it involves, the, and I guess we'll get into some of the nutrients as well. But yeah, you can go, go ahead.
0: Yeah. So let's, let's, I just want to map out that basic because we've said, like, okay, if all these things aren't working, then fructose gets converted to fat or the fat gets converted to other fats, you know, fatty acids get converted to fats. And that's what leads to this production of fat in the liver. So I want to just use this diagram to show how that's happening. I think it maps it out nicely. Obviously, if you're looking at this, it looks a little complex at first, but we'll break it down. So basically, at the top here, we've got these inputs coming in we've got the carbohydrates which they're noting particularly fructose uh, you've got the free fatty acids that are coming in and then protein as well which the protein isn't particularly relevant for for this right now yeah so when we're looking at both the carbohydrates and the free fatty acids both of them end up getting into the mitochondria and uh, you know which is right here and going through the citric acid cycle uh, and/ or beta oxidation beta oxidation is just for the fatty acids mm-hmm. and what's basically, if there is some blockage going on here, something's not happening uh, or something's not working well, you end up with a large amount of citrate. And we'll talk about this uh, a little bit later on. In slide, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But basically, you get this excess citrate and that citrate is the thing, that's right here, is the thing that gets converted to the fat. So we see that right here. This is that pathway where you get the citrate gets, it basically leaves the mitochondria then it gets uh, converted to acetyl CoA, then malonyl CoA, and then palmitate, which is uh, one of our saturated fats. And then the palmitate can also be converted to stearate, which is another one of the saturated fats that our bodies produce.
1: Those are the two main ones that that are produced yeah. from any type of substrate coming in. And right. I think it's important to point out for people because everybody like wants to hate on palmitate, and it's like that is the primary fatty acid that our body's going to produce our first. Produce, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Um, and so this is that basic process of fatty acid synthesis. And it comes from any like anything that's blocking the citric acid cycle, the, the Krebs cycle, mitochondrial respiration, anything that's blocking that is going to lead to an accumulation of citrate. That citrate then leaves the mitochondria and ends up getting converted to fat. And this can happen both from using carbohydrate as an entry point into uh, mm-hmm. mitochondrial respiration or the free fatty acids. Um, and just for clarification, here you see that the free fatty acids are carried into the mitochondria from that CPT-1. This
1: carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1-alpha, right?
0: Yeah. Carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, yep. <laughs> <laughs> which there, it's important to note that just because people will, you know, when you're talking through the physiology, people will talk about that as, as a, an important step to consider. Yep. So you have, so this is just the basic fatty acid synthesis. And then along with this, when you have this process shifting toward all this fatty acid synthesis you then further block respiration and so the, one of the things they talk about here is that the malonyl-CoA the presence of malonyl-CoA blocks the CPT1A the carnitine the carnitine palmitoyl transferase so it blocks the carrier yeah the, the thing that that transports or allows for the fatty acid basically to get into the mitochondria or the acetyl-CoA to get to the mitochondria the yep. melano CoA blocks that. So everything, and there's a bunch of other enzymes that go on and blockages that happen along this whole process that prevent things from being oxidized more because of what they're basically saying is we've got this overload. Things are not working well. We're not able to produce energy or do other things with it. So it has we're just gonna have to shift towards storing everything extra that we have right now as fat. And when this happens, there's another, you know, another two things I want to point out. Well, one thing here is is the S E D one. So when we end up with a lot of production of palmitate and stearate those fatty acids in the liver we then end up with an activity an increased activity of SCD1 which converts these fatty acids to monounsaturated fats we've got the palmitoleate and the oleate and those then can get used to produce um, to produce triglycerides there's a couple of different pathways you can see here that basically go from the production of fatty acids to the production of triglycerides and the triglycerides is just a few fatty acids put together with a, with a glycerol backbone and that triglyceride is the fat that we're talking about when you're talking about uh, fatty liver it's high amounts of triglycerides and that gets that just a downstream conversion effect from these fats these fatty acids that get produced and then that's where you end up with all these triglycerides over here and so the reason I wanted to highlight that C D one is because we talked about that in more detail in a uh, previous episode about why it is definitely a uh, something you don't want to see elevated—it's a sign that that this is happening. That you know you're not using the substrate well, and you're producing a lot of fat. But it's not necessarily the target or the main focus that is determining something. It's more just on the surface level as a response, so or as a symptom.
1: It's like a marker.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, is there anything else you want to add here to this graphic? We'll we'll dig in in a little bit in some more detail about what actually is going on in the mitochondria here that is causing this to happen in the first place. Um, and there's a really great graphic that we'll use to, yeah. to dig into that in a second.
1: The one thing I just wanted to highlight here and something that you, t- you did talk about and you did mention is that it's this buildup of citrate in this system is where you start to see this, like the citrate and then you move to malonyl coa and then you have the shutdown of um, CPT1A. So mm-hmm. it's like, this is the, the derangement happens in the mitochondria. And and then eventually what you see is that yeah. buildup of citrate. And then that's when you start to see, okay, once you start to see like a uh, high, it's it's all about concentrations, right? So once you reach the certain concentration here, you start to see things move downstream into producing the palmitate and stearate And then mm-hmm. we did talk about this in the SCD one. Uh, what was that about the fire in a bottle stuff? That was the podcast that we talked about yeah. this. And that the SCD one, I think we uh, we came to the conclusion that it was upregulated because when you convert the the saturated fatty acids into the monounsaturated fatty acids. They're easier to process and move around and, and, and things like that. And then uh, eventually what we showed is that when you have this high buildup of the saturated fatty acids inside the the cell, that's when you start getting the lipotoxicity. So the SCD one here is actually there for a reason. It, it, like it's a release valve on what's going on inside the cell. And Mm -hmm. it just wanted to highlight the, those, those key areas. So it's this concentration of citrate based on what's deranged in the mitochondria and then also um the SED one is like a release valve for the production of these saturated fatty acids so that they can be processed because you have the liver, which which you have basically have like a storage in the fatty acids, and you I, you can have it intramuscularly, you don't necessarily want so much of that, but you have like this the liver, you have the depots for the fatty acids, which can take these triglycerides, and you can the liver can hold some as well and it can move for storage. But once you start like maxing out that system or you impair like this process of Exporting and whatnot, you can start to run into some serious issues, and, and that's where you start to like. It's part of this lack of ability to basically export the fats out of the liver is one of the, the problems. You can't export the mm-hmm. fat, and then you also have like the derangement of the mitochondria. So you're basically creating bottlenecks inside the cell, and that's that's where you start seeing the derangement happens inside the cell with these bottlenecks. I think that that's that's the key that we're going to get to in the next couple slides or whatever graphics whatever you want to call them cuz it's not really powerpoint but
0: <laughs> yeah the, the other thing i want to point out here is that when everyone's so focused on fructose causing these problems but if you have this issue with mitochondrial respiration then you still can have the free fatty acids coming in getting converted to acetyl coa outside of the mitochondria and then they go to be converted directly into triglycerides themselves like basically through the well they're showing it in a dotted line here but really it's going through this whole pathway over here yep um through the malonyl coa and whatever else but This can be caused just as much by fatty acids as it is by fructose. So, just wanted to highlight that as well: that an issue with any sort of mitochondrial respiration here, that's really where this is all centrally happening, is going to encourage these things to move toward uh, fat. And what a lot of people focus on is this idea that it's not a problem with respiration. Instead, it's when you've got so much, you've been doing it so much, you've got so much substrate, whether it's fructose or fats, that you're going to produce a lot of ATP. And then that's going to slow this down because you've got enough energy. So then that's going to cause all these other issues. But in reality, that is very, very rarely the case. Normally, the problem is things are getting stopped way before you have too much energy. But instead, there are other things blocking this process that um, prevent actually prevent the production of energy. So yeah. And again, to, to clarify, and we'll show this in another diagram, um, This this is not the only thing that happens when things are blocked in the mitochondria. You also have the conversion. You can increase the conversion to glucose, increase the conversion to uh, lactate and things like that. I mean, you convert to glycogen as well, but this is just what's happening on the fatty acid production side, or sorry, I should say the triglyceride synthesis side.
1: Well, I even think the most important thing or the most negative thing that happens is when you start seeing all that ROS generation in the mitochondria, and we're going to get to that. So I yeah. know what you're saying. Every there can be converted to other things besides triglycerides. Like you can also have gluconeogenesis and what not going on, or, or glycogen. Once those get right. maxed out, though, then you're starting to move in towards. Basically, that's where you start getting more derangement. But the ROS, I yeah. think, is where we're going to see the biggest, the biggest problem, and then that's where where will come in.
0: Yeah. Well, and and that is something. So you do end up seeing when you're seeing increased lipogenesis, you also see increased hepatic glucose output, which is normally something that's seen in insulin resistance and diabetes, and that's what causes high fasting blood sugar. Is this propensity to shunt out or send out a lot of um, glucose from the liver because typically either the liver's under stress or some other aspect, you know, some other areas under stress, and that's causing high stress hormones. So and that tends to be caused by the lack of energy. So you've got this this perfect system going on that all contributes to this problem, and so. Unless you had anything else to add there, Mike, I'm going to go on to the next diagram talking about what actually could be causing this and then all the different places that it could, you know, all the different effects that could be happening.
1: I just, this is like kind of, I didn't look at this directly, but it's kind of like amusing when we were looking at the diagram. I wonder if the protective effect of mm-hmm. the so called unsaturated fatty acids, whether mono or poly, is because they already have the double bonds in them. So they're easier to export, whereas the saturated fats, when they go to the, towards into the liver, have those extra steps. And so you can maybe saturate the pathways and cause that. That's what's leading to the, to the metabolic issue with excess because they do show in studies when you overfeed on saturated fatty acids, or at least there was two studies that showed this in humans that when you like overfed by a thousand calories, (laughs) which is a lot, they showed that you did get a increase in, in, um, fatty 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 liver. Yeah.
0: Yeah. More so than with PUFA
1: more so than exactly. And I think what may have been occurring there is perhaps there's like a little bottleneck at where the enzymes become saturated and then processing the saturated fat can cause like, can, um, slow down that process where PUFA or monounsaturated fats because they're already converted into those forms that are more easily movable. It's like, there's less, there's less, less likelihood for bottleneck, but then that does, that isn't, that changes the dynamic of like, what's underlying the problem, right? Because even though there's less bottleneck with, with like, something like PUFA, we, you still have the oxidative issue. So I, that's just amusing. That's something that we'll, ha- we'll have to look at separately. But I think that it may have something to do with the enzymes like that, where it's like the saturated fat causes the bottleneck because of a processing issue, not because the saturated fats are inherently metabolically harmful. And then obviously if you have too much substrate inside the cell, then that's where it's metabolically harmful, but that's not a feature of the saturated fatty acids. That would be a feature of just having too much substrate inside the cell, too much fat in general. So,
0: which is also a feature of how well are you using it, right? It's not just you have too much, but is there something preventing you from using it effectively? That's going to cause relatively too much. The other thing too, is, is that like you mentioned, is this also perhaps a protective mechanism? Whereas when you're having a lot of PUFA, maybe you don't cause fatty liver, but you have these other pathologies going on elsewhere that are potentially worse. Um, you know, maybe you'd prefer fatty liver in that point, at that point, considering yeah. the the extremely toxic and harmful metabolic effects of, and other effects of PUFA, so.
1: Yeah. And the reason I bring that up for the audience and everyone is that a lot of people, like the causative factors for fatty liver, everyone is like, oh, it's fructose and saturated fat. So yeah that's that's kind of why I bring that that up there. it's It's like how are they actually causing it? Because we have explanations for why fructose is causing it in that particular way, but we haven't really um we'll have to dig in a little more on saturated fat,
0: yeah, I mean, it's basically the same thing. Um, yeah, I would say, but anyway, anyway I, I did want to mention one thing you you mentioned there just real quick on that last diagram that I didn't highlight as much was the exportation of the fat. So you do have the accumulation, but you also so we have this this accumulation here of triglycerides but you also have an increase in exportation of those triglycerides as vldl or ldl so that's also a feature that you see in this situation but again it's just a a downstream effect of these other things but moving on to the next thing that i wanted to it it digs in basically into these mechanisms a little further which i'll just we'll kind of go through this and then we'll talk through some of the studies reflecting it
1: yep is this going to be the big one yeah crazy one Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So here, and and this is a pretty, there's a lot going on in this diagram. So we'll we'll kind of go through it. The other thing that I don't like about this diagram. So I like that it has a lot of these features, but I don't like the organization of it, the, the numbering, because I think it's kind of out of order in my view. So I'm actually going to go through it in the order that I would say it happens. And then we'll go from there. So, we talked about how really the bottleneck seems to, you know, the bottleneck tends to be at mitochondrial respiration at the produ- uh, production of energy. We talk about this in virtually every condition because it tends to be in virtually every condition. So, what we're seeing, we're seeing that really over here at number seven and number six. But basically, this whole area right here, this is the electron transport chain. And mm-hmm. so, this is the last piece of mitochondrial respiration where we're producing that ATP. And what they're saying here is that. And they're not, expl- they're not giving a reason for it, but there are a lot of reasons why this can be deranged, why this cannot be working properly. Part of it could be because you're burning a lot of fat and stuff, a lot of carbs. Part of it could be because you've got a lot of nitric oxide. Part of it could be because of uh, endotoxin, which directly comes in here and blocks some of these components or its downstream effects with TLR4 and TNF alpha. Like All of the, all of the stress and inflammatory processes have blockages basically along this electron transport chain. And in a protective way that we've discussed before, basically, you want to conserve energy when things are not great. So that's what we're seeing here where they're noting, for one, they note, which I love this, they note the low NAD and FAD relative to a high NADH and FADH2. So this is basically showing a low NAD to NADH ratio. And they're mm-hmm. saying that that's happening because the electron train is not able to function well. And so you're not able to offload the electrons. So you aren't able to convert NADH to NAD. So you end up with a large amount of NADH and you also end up with a large amount of FADH2 in the same process. It can't offload its electrons. So you end up with a high amount of those relative to NAD plus and FAD And so that's one thing you get. Another thing that you get when this there's blockages here is a high amount of reactive oxygen species, which you see right here. Um, and that ends up causing some downstream effects that we'll come back to. Uh, you also end up with low ATP, which they don't describe directly here, but that would be another piece that you see. So that's what I would say is really what's starting this. And then they also mentioned some of these react, the reactions to this, which these are a little farther downstream. So they mentioned uncoupling up here at number six. Um, but what they're really talking about is just what's going on at the electron transport chain. When things get really bad there, you do see increases on, in uncoupling. And this is a feature that you see in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You see increases on, in uncoupling. You see this effect on the NAD to NADH ratio. You see increases in fat oxidation which is counterintuitive because people think if you're producing a lot of fat in the liver, you're probably not oxidizing much, but you actually end up favoring that fat oxidation. You also, of course, do see increased lipogenesis. You also see increased hepatic glucose output or gluconeogenesis, which we'll talk about in more detail. You see increased SCD one which we mentioned in the last one and is not shown here because this isn't focusing as much on the fat production. Um, and you see increased free fatty acids and the release and increased stress and lipid peroxidation, which the peroxidation we yep. see here. So Um, so we've got this, the situation of the electron transport chain. And then what that does is that's going to block the function of the, um, or the, I guess I should say the complete function of the citric acid cycle, the Krebs cycle. So they're talking about an increase here, which does happen as an adaptive effect that we'll talk about later, where basically because there's a lack of energy as a backup response, you try to run respiration harder, but it's not able to. Run all the way through because you've got this block at the electron transport chain. So instead, what you end up with is a buildup of citrate. You can also end up with a build build of oxaloacetate, uh, and so then just as we talked about before, that buildup of citrate ends up leaving the cell, or that and the oxaloacetate gets converted to malate. So those both end up leaving the mitochondria. Excuse me, not the cell
1: mm-hmm. down
0: here, and they get end up they end up getting converted to one of two things: Glucose either or fat. Yeah. yeah. either glucose or fat. So here, uh, number five, we've got the increase in de novo lipogenesis, the conversion to fat. Uh, you also end up with an increase in ketogenesis, which again, we haven't talked too much. We've talked about the, this before where ketogenesis is, tends to be regulated by uh, excessive stress and excessive stress hormones. And you see that here where you increase the production of ketones as a as a response to stress. And then over here on the left, as you mentioned, you see the increase in gluconeogenesis. That's here on the left, number four. Which mm-hmm. is also happening from those same byproducts. So this is what you see happening when there's a lack of mitochondrial oxidation or respiration. Things are not, um, you know, the the materials the substrates are not being used properly. And then if you follow that up a little bit, so we mentioned the increase in citrate, increase in oxaloacetate, it also leads to a buildup of acetyl CoA within the mitochondria, and that then blocks a lot of the upstream effects. So you end up blocking pyruvate dehydrogenase. This is all features of the Ranzel cycle too. I'll, I'll explain that in a second, but you basically see this situation where you block the, uh, the usage of glucose in respiration and you actually shift toward increased beta oxidation to an extent, um, which they're noting here as well. And as I mentioned, you see increased fat oxidation relative to glucose oxidation in this state, and that's because of the Randall cycle. So basically all the Randall cycle is, it's not really a cycle. It's just a situation that happens when you are burning fat, or you're not burning glucose effectively. You end up with a lot of reactive oxygen species. You end up with a low NAD to NADH ratio that controls the citric acid cycle and, and the Krebs cycle. It leads to a buildup of citrate. Um, it leads up to a buildup of CoA, and then you also have the low NAD to NADH ratio, and that blocks several steps that lead that allow for glucose to be converted to well, eventually um, through the citric acid cycle, and then eventually to um, to energy to ATP. So Basically, we're just seeing that here is a fang- function of insulin resistance where um, we know insulin resistance is just in an inability to burn glucose as a fuel, and that's happening in this case because of all these backup pathways and it blocks all the enzymes that help along that pathway and it also slows down mitochondrial respiration as a whole. And I'm gonna I know I just dug into the weeds and it was kind of going, I guess a little quickly. So I don't know, Mike, do you want to maybe help me summarize some of those things before we talk about the lipid peroxidation and oxidative stress and uh the other inflammation components here.
1: I think the biggest thing that people need to understand is that it's, it's just uh it's like a bottleneck and then a backlog. So when you have that backlog there, it basically this cycle, it's literally a cycle it, it, and it they show you show it moves in a singular direction. When this backlogs here, it shuts down this process on the, the, the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle on the left. And then that backlogs everything coming into here, your acetyl-CoA um, from all of these, these substrates. And then it basically shunts everything in sort of like a, like backup pathways per se. And that's where you start mm-hmm. to see that shift in towards beta-oxidation. So literally, you don't need to understand all the different enzymes. You don't need to understand all the, the different cofactors, the different uh, mediators that are produced here, succinate, fumarate, malate, et cetera. What you need to mm-hmm. understand is that you have this ratio shift over here at the electron transport chain um it shifts everything back and then Mm -hmm. when everything gets shifts back it it basically you have all of these processes that that are that are still trying to run because basically you're having a flow of energy you're taking the food you're taking the electrons off the food you're putting it on carriers and you're running it through this process that's literally what this is it's trying to flow energy from food To produce energy for the cell when the cell can't flow the energy in order to like not basically implode on itself it moves that energy into different ways because you can't have all these electrons or the electron carriers just i mean essentially what you get is you have too much saturated electron carriers with your nadh and your fadh2 so then this when that happens the cell doesn't have anything to carry the electrons anymore And so it's kind of like, oh, what do I do? So it starts Mm -hmm. shunting to de novo lipogenesis. So it turns, it takes whatever the substrates that it, that, um, that it, the food that it converted into the substrates, it takes those substrates and it shunts them into storage as de novo lipogenesis. And then it Mm -hmm. shunts them into producing them as, as glucose with gluconeogenesis. And then it, it backlogs the process. And then at a certain point, it's like, I can't keep producing fats or producing glucose or backing the process up because you still have the substrate coming in. So then it starts to uncouple. So basically what you're showing here is that the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle, which is number three, gets uncoupled, which means it's not linked anymore to the electron transport chain, which is number seven. When that occurs, it basically, the energy that's produced or the carriers that are produced from the citric acid cycle just get pushed through the uncoupling protein and generate heat to as a way to waste the excess energy so what the mm-hmm. cell is saying is like i can't process the energy effectively so i need to find ways to get rid of it and that's that's what's going on and that's why you start seeing the backlog of fats and the and that shunting of these shunting of these mediators to producing glucose with these mediators and then burning the excess through deno- through uncoupling. And the whole process is just based on that energy failure at the cell. So you need to figure out what's causing that energy failure at the cell. And it could be like a, a, a series of different things, but you you need to figure that out. And that solves the problem, not anything outside of that, right? You need to mm-hmm. fix that energy, the energy failure at the cell. That's really what it is. The cell is just pushing everything in all these different directions. Because when this flows, it flows nicely. You have your glucose, your fatty acids, they come in. The fatty acids will run through beta-oxidation. The glucose will come through the citric acid cycle. Then the whatever. Then the acetyl-CoA for beta-oxidation will go through the citric acid cycle. It'll produce uh, NADH plus and FADH2. That will run through the electron transport chain, you'll get ATP, you'll get CO2, and and throughout that whole process, you'll produce water, and you're you're good to go. It's very simple. But when you have that bottleneck, when you you start losing electron carriers, and there's nowhere to to store these electrons, you basically get screwed. (laughs) Your cell is just like, has all of this stuff coming in, and nowhere to put it. So it just starts Mm -hmm. storing it in all these different directions, trying to solve... (laughs) Basically, trying to solve its problem. So you need to solve that 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 issue there first. You need to get the cell to uh, start oxidizing correctly through the citric acid cycle and through the electron transport chain. So you need to find out what the block is, and mm-hmm. that's and I think that's the simplest way to put it. It's I guess an analogy. Um, it's it's like if you had a supply chain in a factory. Um, a, a very a very relevant one is if you have a meat factory, right? and mm-hmm. you produce steaks if you have x you have 100 100 cows or 100 cattle come in per day and you put out 10,000 steaks right if you have a if you ruin the machinery that puts in the steaks but you still have 100 cattle coming in per day you're loading up the factory with cattle without that bottleneck for the steaks to be without or you have a bottleneck so the steaks can't be produced so, it's just mm-hmm. like you start storing the cattle, the, the carcasses of the cattle in the freezer, and just like until you can fix the machinery. But you need to get the machinery going again. That's really what, that's really the problem. You don't want to stop the cattle from coming in the factory. Maybe you want to stop it for a little period of time so that you can fix the bottleneck. But the ultimate goal isn't to stop the cattle from coming in. The ultimate goal is to start making the stakes again. And that means getting the machinery to, to function appropriately. And that's the easiest right. way I think. To break it down, so that people um, people understand what's going on. Now, the next step that you're going to get into, and uh, you explain it, and you can explain it, but the idea here is that in the next step, you're still trying to run the machinery, but the machinery is messed up to produce the steaks, so it's creating a lot of smoke inside the factory. That's essentially what you see going on. Your, your, your conveyor belt is broken, but you're still running it to produce as many steaks as you can, and in some cases you're 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 running at the conveyor belt for the cattle the carcasses to come in and you're just moving all of them into like i don't know like to a garbage pile that would be your uncoupling to some extent you're just but and in this process you produce a lot of smoke because the machinery is broken and that's what you're that's what you're about to explain with peroxidation
0: yeah yeah and so the just to, i know it might have gone lost in the analogy but the uncoupling is a response to a lot of reactive oxygen species and oxidative stress and relieves those things. It, it doesn't tend to cause those, but
1: yeah, I'm trying to put it in the, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know that it's yeah, too, trying to compare it to the analogy, The analogy is not perfect. Yeah. Right. Right.
0: So, but what, so is what is happening? So we talked through kind of the initial parts here and then one other byproduct that you see in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the increase in oxidative stress, which you're seeing over here and the increase in peroxidation. And inflammation and eventually apoptosis. If things start getting so bad, you're producing so much of the oxidative stress. Basically, you're um, there's a lot of reactive oxygen species getting produced. That ends up leading to all of these uh, backup pathways. And you also happen to see a couple of stress pathways that they noted here. You've got the NRFs and PGC1 alpha. And these are, are things I'm just highlighting them because some people will note them as good things that happen in response to stress. And I mean, they are they're good in that they help us adapt to stress, but they aren't things that we want to be. You know, encouraging or forcing, as as increased, uh, or forcing them to be increased. So, yeah, I think, I think that explained most of what I you know most of the mechanisms that I wanted to touch on uh, as far as this goes.
1: Okay. Um,
0: is there anything you want to add?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to when you talk about so when you the ROS is basically um, they're free radicals per se, right? They're they're components that are gonna pull electrons, is correct? They're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna pull electrons from other components inside the cell, and that's what's being generated here at at number seven at the electron transport chain in this derangement. And mm-hmm. you have some one of the, you have some components inside the cell that can solve that problem. That's where you see your glutathione peroxidase and your manganese superoxide dismutase. Those are there to basically so- soap up those free radicals. So those are protective systems as well. But what happens is the reactive oxygen species that are produced can basically go grab electrons from other components, whether that, that whether it be inside the cell, the DNA uh, mm-hmm. of the cell, or it can go to the cell membrane or any of the fats in the cell. And that's where you're seeing the peroxidation. That's where you're seeing the they're they're basically destroying the fatty acids in the cell, and the ones yeah. most likely to be destroyed are going to be your polyunsaturated fatty acids, and then mm-hmm. what you see below, uh hydroxy neo it's HNE. I can't pronounce the other one, and then the oxysterols are all the peroxidative damaging aspects. And then these aspects are the shift into the actual highly inflammatory state when you start seeing a lot of these. And that's where you see the difference between hepatitis and just like a a fatty liver disease or fatty liver.
0: So you're saying like fat production versus fat production with inflammation. And again, the inflammation being here, the JNK, which I mentioned that pathway earlier that Robert Lustig liked to point out and NF-kappa B, which is another just inflammatory marker. So yeah, you've got the peroxidation, meaning the damage of of fats, specifically polyunsaturated fats and you mentioned those byproducts there that we're seeing here and then also yep. inflama- inflammatory markers.
1: Yep. And then I guess you could just say the NRF1 and 2 and then the PGC1 alpha are basically just like they sort of upregulate cellular defense in response to the oxidative stress so they right. help the cell deal with that oxidative stress and ROS better but they're their backup pathways to to mm-hmm. what's going on ideally what you want running is you want the cell to be able to just oxidize the, the glucose or, or the fatty acids to your ATP and your CO2. That's, that's the ideal state. You want it to just basically right. run through nice and clean and not have to worry about upregulating the NRF1 and 2 and PGC1 alpha. And this is where when, this is where, when we talk about hormesis, we have the issue because a lot of people mm-hmm. focus on these hormetic pathways rather than just like that's step two. That's like step two, step three down the road, instead of just making sure the system works right in the first place. And this is Pete's whole idea and why Pete initially turned us on to the issues with with hormesis and whatnot. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 So this, this is a nice transition into pointing out, like, I know we talked about all this as if this is what happens, but there's a lot of research supporting all these points. And I want to start with just this idea that the central problem here is a problem with mitochondrial respiration, a problem with ATP production. That's leading to this issue. And so, uh, and so, and we already mentioned like poor fat oxidation, poor oxidation being the problem. So, I'm going to read a quote from a study, and this study has a graphic as well that we can gloss over a little bit. Um, but basically, what we're going to be seeing here, well, okay, so I'll read the quote. So, the, uh, the article states markers of mitophagy were increased, but proteosomal degradation activity was reduced. In non alcoholic fatty liver disease mice livers, suggesting that ATP deficiency, because of the reduced stability of oxidative phosphorylation complex units, contributed to inhibition of ubiquitin, proteasome, and activation of mitophagy. Uh, in conclusion, the heavy water metabolic labeling approach shows that increased degradation of hepatic oxidative phosphorylation subunits contributed to mitochondrial impairment in non alcoholic fatty liver disease mice. That was a jumble of words, but it did have meaning (laughs) to it. Um, So what we're basically seeing there. So for one, they were saying markers of mitophagy were increased. And you mentioned hormesis. And so this is something that you see is that in disease processes, you see increases in autophagy and mitophagy, which are basically recycling of components of the cells. And people say that's a good thing, but you see that in this dysregulation in these states. Uh, At this point, they're seeing markers of it increasing. But they actually mentioned that the degradation of the of the like the proteolytic activity, like the degradation, the recycling of the prote- protein components, uh, was actually reduced. It wasn't happening well. So it's almost the equivalent of trying to stimulate autophagy, but it not functioning for some reason. And this is again one of those main main problems with hormesis, where if you, you're just trying to do the things that are going to increase autophagy, if these other problems, like if there are other problems going on, then it's just going to make it worse because you're causing those stress signals, which is already going to make it worse, causing stress. But you're not even able to, uh, to perform autophagy, or in this case, mitophagy because of these problems. You see derangement of those processes. And here they mention that it's because of ATP deficiency and a reduced ability of the oxidative subunits, the, the components that allow for the production of energy through mitochondrial respiration or oxidation. Okay. And so they have a...
1: Essentially energy failure. Exactly. Literally energy, energy failure. failure.
0: With stress. So they're trying to activate these stress processes, but they can't because there's an energy failure. And they're saying that this happens in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So here's the... Um, they've got a little graphic here. What you see here is basically what they were looking at in the study, where what they found in the case of fatty liver disease was that the there's a couple of things that were going on. So one was that mitochondrial respiration was not functioning too well, and they saw an increase in NADH. And remember, we talked about this before with a low NAD to NADH ratio. That's the equivalent of an increase in NADH. Um, But it's accumulating because it's not being converted down here at the electron transport chain. And what that then leads to is a slowing down of the Krebs cycle, an increase in acetyl-CoA, and that ends up causing increases in all the fat production pathways, which they mentioned. And then you also end up seeing, because, and I guess this kind of starts earlier, is the decrease in ATP. So they mentioned that right over here. And along the way, they also mentioned that there's an increase in reactive oxygen species production coming from the electron transport chain. So it starts here, and then they show that happening over here on the left. So I don't want to dig into this too much. We kind of already talked about it, but this is just basically what they were seeing in the study was uh, mitochondrial respiration not functioning all that well and leading to the situation of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease.
1: It's what we just said, all broken down into one slide. And I mm-hmm. just, it, the one thing that's nice about this one is that you have the NADH elevated here as and showing it as central. So yeah. you're seeing that you basically have, so your electron carriers through the citric acid cycle is going to be your FAD and then your NAD plus. And when you, when those are, when those are fully saturated with electrons, which is what you see with your NADH2 and your FADH2, then you don't have anything else to pull any more electrons. So you basically run out of carriers. You run out of the ability to to hold that energy. And then that's that's the central piece of clogging up the chain. I think that's the most important piece that I think people need to understand is that it it's, and I wish I don't have an analogy off the top of my head right now, <laughs> because that like perfectly relates. Because like, even with the last one, like, it's kind of hard to have it hit all the hit all the explanations. But you're essentially when this happens down when you basically don't have any carriers, then you start you impair energy production at the cell. And then mm-hmm. we talked about this previously, but you have that the bottleneck that develops, then you have the ROS production. And so basically you have an energetic failure. And with that energetic failure, and this is so important because it flies in the face of this idea. That the longer, if you want to live a long time, you need to have a low metabolic rate, right? Because this is showing that if you have a lower metabolic rate, you increase your ROS production. And this, like, we're showing it through fatty liver, which I think is important. It's, but, it, like, in all of these disease states, it, it wounds up being the same thing. All the metabolic syndrome winds up going in the same place. You have an energetic, you have energy failure at the cell, and you have increased oxidative stress. And then it, with the increased oxidative stress, you basically can, you start peroxidizing lipids and causing DNA, DNA damage inside the cell. With mm-hmm. enough of that, you start getting basically, um, what is it? Uh, what's the word that I was, is it? No, it's not autophagy.
0: Um, my autophagy,
1: no aut- autophagy. Yeah. Okay. Or, uh, apoptosis. There we go. <laughs> mm,
0: okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's like the metabolic and energy production is central to everything that's going on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and Slowing the metabolic rate or functioning on backup pathways is just not the answer. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Definitely. Um so moving on from from there, I did want to just note a couple other studies that were just talking about how integral the uh mitochondrial respiration is to to the situation and how it's shown to be impaired and fatty liver. And one of them I think is particularly important. This first one we won't spend too much time on, but I just wanted to share the quote where they mentioned that increased levels of cardiolipin and ubiquinone, which are the major factors in the electron transport chain, help to uh, may help to preserve mitochondrial function in early non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And then later on, they mentioned that these data suggest a close link between accumulation of specific hepatic lipid species, mitochondrial dysfunction, and the progression of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Just pointing out that connection. And that did remind me you mentioned uh, an analogy, like wanting, you know, some sort of analogy. And we had a decent one in the past, which was an assembly line. And I think it's a helpful one where basically you have these carriers, uh, that are carrying electrons or something with energy, something with value to somewhere else to produce something. So, uh, you have some, you know, some people are carrying some, I think you had, what was the example you gave? Maybe like making a computer, let's say like making like a, uh, let's say like making a chair. Right. And so one person has to, Create the legs, one person has to create the scene, one person has to create the back part. And then somebody else puts it all together. So everyone just has their own job. And so you have the people who are uh they're carrying all the legs over to the person at the end, and these you've got these other people who are carrying the seats and the back of the chair over to the person at the end who has to assemble them. Mm -hmm. And that's those people carrying the things over are like the NADH and FADH too. They're carrying these, these things that are potentially going to become something of value, but on their own don't really do anything. And if that is set, if that person at the end, if there's not enough people at the end, or the, for whatever reason, they ran out of glue or whatever puts the chairs together, and so they can't put them together, you just end up with a bunch of people walking around with those components and there's nothing to do with them. And so that's like the high value, like the high NADH compared to the NAD+. The NAD plus would be people without anything who are going to get more and bring it back. So you've got all these people holding onto these components of the chairs, and they don't really have anything to do with them. And then you meant you know to add on an extra little piece here is we've got the reactive oxygen species, uh, which is that basically when you have this happening, and this isn't, I guess this isn't perfect because the reactive oxygen species is really happening at the end there. But mm-hmm. I guess what what's happening with reactive oxygen species, you could say like the 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 people with these components keep trying to dump them off to the people at the end. People at the end don't have enough glue to put them together, so they're just like chucking those. Components out somewhere, and they like you know they're breaking stuff. They're just throwing them out. Maybe that maybe it's causing some sort of a, a fire or something because it's all wood, and that's like the reactive oxygen species where it's like you've got this bottleneck. You can't use the components, and they just start causing havoc elsewhere because there's nothing else that can be done with them. Um, and along the way, I guess another piece here is that instead of then using this wood to make chairs, because the whole chair making process isn't going well, you start using the wood to. I don't know, do something harmful. <laughs> and like the, the wood just accumulates. I guess let's say the wood just, just accumulates.
1: They're just piling up pieces of the chair all over the place inside inside this factory.
0: But it's not even pieces of the chair. It's like pre those pieces. It's like you've got the wood that it was carved from. You've got this huge amount of that wood and that's the fat accumulation, right? Instead of mm-hmm. starting to take those pieces and put them through the chair making process, you know it's not working well. So you just start stacking up those huge stacks of wood. And that's like the equivalent of... of Uh, the accumulation of fat that's happening because of this other process that's deranged and so these studies are where where these ideas are coming from showing that the process the this process is what's limiting what's the limiting factor in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and is causing the fat accumulation
1: so essentially the chairs there's something blocking the assembly line so the chairs can't be produced when the mm-hmm. chairs can't be produced, then all the people who are carrying parts are stuck with their parts because it's not flowing anymore. And then it, that backlogs all the way up so that the wood that's coming in to make these parts, there's nowhere for it to go. So they just start storing it in places inside the factory. Once you yeah, have yeah. an excess amount of wood inside the factory, you're not, the factory is not able to function appropriately. And then eventually the factory explodes. And that's apoptosis.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for... That was a good way to piece it all together at the end. That was a good job. And
1: while they, <laughs> While the while they're trying to make the chairs, the Mm -hmm. ROS is essentially like they can't make the chairs, so they just start breaking the pieces of chairs that are there to get rid of them. They're like just like all these shards of broken chair all over the place. And like Mm -hmm. it damages it damages the factory workers, and then there's damage to the factory itself. And so that's what happens when there's no flow anymore. And that's basically what's happening. That's what happens at the cellular level. You don't have that flow of energy that's the most important piece and that's mm-hmm. what that's why p always like when people ask him like how like what do you do to stress like how do you prevent aging like it's always just like the flow of energy the flow of energy the flow of energy it, it's because that's what it essentially comes down to everything sort of like is breaking at that level and it doesn't like it's at every single um every single disease the other thing i wanted to point out on one of the previous slides that mm-hmm. we didn't discuss was at the top it just said an increase in insulin resistance at the fat, the white adipose tissue and the muscle cell. So okay. what it's showing there is that this process has already occurred to some extent at your, your fat tissue and at your muscles. And then, it mm-hmm. Started, mm-hmm. and then it can start to back up to a degree to the liver. So it's like the same thing that's occurring at the liver cell has happened to some degree at these other cells. And then the last, yeah. the last frontier of this problem to occur is at the liver. And then when it starts happening at the liver, it, it just like it becomes a se- like a severe derangement. So it's kind of, and I mean, they, they you see that because like diabetics with fatty liver can have like the worst outcomes compared to the diabetics that don't. And most diabetics tend to have fatty liver. So it's yeah. like, that's diabetes. is like this state on a systemic level happening with like many, many cells inside the body. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's, um, there's the analogy and I just want to touch that because I was going to say it before and I forgot.
0: Yeah, yeah, perfect. All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, make sure to tune into part three, where we'll continue discussing the role of energy failure in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, as well as why fat burning is actually one of the main causes of fatty liver, one of the main pieces of this pathological state. If you did enjoy today's episode, please leave a like or comment if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening elsewhere, please leave a review or five-star rating on iTunes. All of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast and are very much appreciated. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jayfeltonandwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are struggling with any of the symptoms or chronic health conditions that we've been discussing throughout the series, whether that is fatty liver and insulin resistance or other related conditions like diabetes or heart disease, or if you're dealing with any other low energy symptoms, whether that's chronic cravings and hunger, fatigue, joint pain, weight gain, uh, poor sleep or insomnia, digestive symptoms like bloating or inflammation or issues with slow motility, or if you're dealing with brain fog or any hormonal imbalances that might be presenting as low libido or various hormonal issues or reproductive issues, uh, or if you're dealing with any other chronic health conditions, maybe it's an autoimmune issue or really any other chronic health issue, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by a lack of energy. And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and therefore reverse these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I'll see you in the next episode.